0: Welcome to the Dash Arts Podcast, Seeing the World Through an Artistic Lens. I'm Josephine Burton, Artistic Director of Dash Arts. And I'm Marie Horner, the producer for this podcast. It's lovely to have you with us Marie. Thank you. (laughs) So this podcast is the third in us in our kind of mini-series on our public house. We're very proud of the last two episodes, which we we really give a beautiful picture of the voices and the people we've worked with across the country. So I totally encourage you to go back and listen to episodes one and two to learn more about the project. We've been travelling up and down, meeting people, amplifying people's voices through speech writing. We've supported them to make and deliver speeches about what they care about and what they want to change and what they feel is being ignored. And during November, we held three live events called Speak Out and they were at home in Manchester and the Tabernacle in London. The events were were sort of for really to celebrate the academics who came with us on the the project, Alan and Henrietta, Mm. who really enabled this project to happen, not only through their brilliant kind of academic and expertise and knowledge, but also through their funding and the kind of project. I mean, I mean, they brought funding with them. <laughs> Which, when they you paid got... for it out of their own pockets. No, no, no. They enabled, thanks to the Arts and Humanities Research Council, they um, they were able to bring the funding with them to support this sort of project. They they had this great theory that this these workshops would enable people to to to, to speak out about things they believe in, and so these events in the November were a way to draw the attention of the public and their academic connections to this work and to celebrate it, so that we could hear some of the participants and talk more widely about the process of speech writing the power of it that they were the events to mark the culmination of the project in its first stage which for us is just the beginning of the journey um, as an arts organization to making a new show but for them was the work and it was such an incredible opportunity to hear from the participants that we'd met all over the country Um, And we felt like for this episode, it was a real opportunity to sort of zoom in on three of those participants, though there's been so many more, but who were able to encapsulate some of the things that we'd learned and some Mm -hmm. of the takeaways that we're now moving forward with within the project. Uh, One of those people is Kaylee, who we first met at HMP Style, which is a women's prison up in Manchester Uh, And it was it was the first workshop that I went to as part of our public house. It'd be great just to to touch on that and what it was like for us, for you, working with those women in that prison. I'm really happy that you suggested that we focus on Kaylee because we haven't really talked about that, those Mm -hmm. workshops in Mm -hmm. style. And they were so they were such a valuable experience i i hope for for the participants but also hugely for us as a team to sort of go to meet up to bring you in Marie with us yeah. to put ourselves through the the very high security rigmarole of leaving all our phones and all our lives belonging to the other side of the gate and going through a series of gates in order to 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 walk around their open prison so it's you know it's a it's actually a strangely it's a strange experience because it is a former chart it's a former orphanage that's yes. been converted into a prison which has particular resonance. For the workshops, because like one of the most powerful things was the fact that uh, that came up through the process was was the women who were sharing their sense of loss and sadness about not being with their children, and to and to, to feel that. And when one of the participants uh, mentioned their the fact that the fact that they were in prison has prevented them from being there to support their child there for, as they reach as they reach kind of puberty and teenagerhood, and to look around the room and feel that everyone in that moment was listening and supporting this person sharing that but also in their own loss in that moment uh, you could sort of feel the kind of weight of that in the room it was very powerful um, and sad and emotional for us all because we're all parents actually all, all the participants you know all the workshop leaders are parents too so we all shared that moment um, of sadness and to, to be feeling that inner orphanage feels incredibly poignant I remember so viscerally when that moment happened. We'd only been working with them for a matter of hours, and that was a significant takeaway for me. That trust Mm. that we built so quickly with those women and that interaction—it wasn't one way. It could very much have felt like we were going in, asking loads of questions, asking for story. But I think that's such a good example of where that trust enabled us to share an experience. Mm. Yeah, they 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 shared it with us. It was not you know it was absolutely a yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think I think we've talked previously on the podcast about the games that we play in order to build the community that enable people to feel like it's a safe environment for them to, to go on the process. And as we were plotting the games for that, for that uh, particular visit you know we did our preparation before we before we went into the prison um we we have one game where you know we we we, we did name games so that we all learn each other's names and we walk towards people and we test whether we've absorbed who everyone's names are by looking at them you know by by, by going towards them and saying their name and then there's another version of that name game where you don't actually, you don't actually name the person you're walking towards. You, I, you look them in the eyes as you walk towards them, and you kind of hold that eye contact, and then that person picks up the eye contact and moves forward. And we weren't sure, like whether that would be something that people were happy to do. Mm. You know, like you know, what would be the environment in the room we walked in? Would there be trust? But even would there be like a whole lot of resentment that would come that would prevent us from forming a kind of cohesive group. With group? which i've sort of now discovered is the heart at the heart of all the work that we've done is like you know creating the community that enables people to share their voices and and it was really heartwarming and fascinating for us all i think to have the prejudice that we might not be able to create that environment in the room because people might not even trust or want to trust each other but to see that almost immediately actually in that room that they were up for it that they that they were joking with each other that there was like a love in that room for each other um, and support broke my sort of stereotypes, I think, of what the experience would be for me, but it also enabled that person to share their story. And also, I think, for people like Kaylee to feel comfortable to write speeches, the speech that she did. It was such an incredible opportunity for Kaylee, who was released since we did that workshop, and it meant that she could join us at home in Manchester mm. to share her speech in person.
1: In the TV documentary, My Secret Past. <clears throat> Pop store Shane Lynch talked about his dyslexia and the problems it caused him. At one point he explained that 40% of people in prison have dyslexia. I am one of them. Why is it that it took me to go into prison to figure out that I needed extra educational support? Why wasn't an an educational healthcare plan available to me? Why aren't education healthcare plans available to everyone who needs them? If I had access to an education healthcare plan I might now be following my be following my dream of working in the performing arts. It's not just me. There are lots of young people that haven't had these education healthcare plans. We need to change this. What is an education healthcare plan? An education healthcare plan is a support plan created specifically for an individual This covers what a person needs for their education and their health and social care needs. It's particular for people who have disabilities. I should have had extra support in school. I needed extra time for exams. I needed a blue overlay and a blue exercise book to help me accomplish simple literacy skills. If I had been given this extra support, I would have stayed in school and got my GCSE maths and English. I would be accomplishing my dreams of working in performing arts. I would never have ended up in prison. There are now 517,000 people with education healthcare plans in the UK. Half of these people have been awarded these in 2022 and 2023. Finally, the UK is waking up to the challenge and realising that people need support. But it has to go further and it has to go faster. If people had been given plans earlier, many wouldn't be in prison. In style prison, there are very big waiting lists for English and maths. Although this is a positive that so many want to learn, the negative part is that so many learners have not gained their basic literacy and math skills before coming here. If you were to tell me that that we cannot afford the cost of education healthcare plans, then you were telling me that people like me should end up in prison. Why are we so worried about the cost of things when a young person's education, a young person's life is priceless? You may be thinking that there are other, that, that, that there are other things that money should be spent Kayleigh's on.
0: Kayleigh's emotional, emotional, heartfelt words really underlines for me the power that this project has of, of, of helping people, supporting people in finding their voice. There was never a moment in any of the workshops where when they were asked that question of what do you want to change, where someone didn't have an answer. And I think it's such a big question, but it's also so relatable. Um, But they may just not have been asked that before. So to have that platform, and Kaylee really took it and ran with it and used it to really pinpoint what she wanted to change. Yeah. I mean, I think... It could always start so personally. So Kaylee talked about her blue overlay and the the um the, the paper that she needed and the things that she needed in order to thrive. And um but what the amazing thing about the speech every time is that you will believe it, like you know, it becomes bigger than her. It's not just about Kaylee in the end, it's just about the wider issue. And, and you know, and obviously when we were, when we were preparing to have her uh, as part of our event in Manchester, the, the, the wonderful people at Novus, who are the organisation that brought us into the prisons, gave us a whole bunch of stats. 71% of um, inmates in prisons come to prison without any educational qualifications. So Kaylee, who talked with such great kind of power about the fact that she wouldn't be in prison were she to have had a better education, better education. I mean, she really is speaking to that enormous numbers of people who end up in prison And that, for me, is the power of this project. Because you're right, and and I've heard that statistic before. I think it's from the um, Prisoner Education Trust. Mm. And that, it gives a personal point to it. And for me, that's good speech writing. There's evidence, there's statistics, which will speak to some people. But for me, this project gave life to it and sincerity to it and authenticity to it. What is totally wonderful was particularly for Kayleigh and I'm sorry that you know I hope Monday we will have an opportunity to work with other of the other of the learners in in, in style and support them in their ongoing journey because you know we we gave Kaylee that platform and she seized it she was there with like bells on we provided her with a platform from which she will definitely I am sure go on to take some of those opportunities that emerge through it and and continue on her journey and and it's wonderful to feel like it's not just giving her a voice, but it's a, I hope this project is giving her giving her a platform to be heard. Brilliantly, she caught up with Chris, the producer uh, from Dash Arts, our brilliant producer, uh, who are behind the scenes just after the event. And Chris also spoke to Michael, who was another one of the participants that we had from.
1: Well, it was a great experience, but also like it's given me opportunities because like I've had like two people now come to me and say I should go back into creative writing and. Performance and I've got an offer for, um, for someone called Hattie Naylor, and she's based in she- she- Sheffield-Halem University. She's just giving me a details. Like I said, tr- you can try and come here if you want, and we've got courses available for you. And I don't even need, like, maths and nothing like that to get into it. She said, I can do it just with the English that I've got. That's
2: brilliant. Thank nice. you so much. And how did, you, one, you- how did you think tonight went?
1: At first I was a bit nervous, but then... St- when it's all over and it's done, it's like feel better now. I feel more relieved and relaxed. Feel more relaxed now. It was a brilliant experience, and thank you for inviting me.
3: Thank you so much for taking part. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So much. We'll be in touch. Uh, all right,
2: Michael. What what do you make of the, this whole thing? Wow, well,
3: absolutely amazing. Uh, never done anything like this before. But uh, uh, following on from other activities, this is uh, just greatly increase my confidence, give me a boost that uh, I can uh stretch my comfort zone. Yeah it's uh, it gives you it gives you a real buzz uh, and uh you know proves that uh, stick to your your guns and you know enjoy uh, and certainly my confidence uh in speaking in being able to construct a speech with your help uh, has given me a real uh, shot in the arm.
2: Been brilliant too. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much Thank indeed. So,
3: nice to see you nice again, love. And hopefully we'll catch up probably sometime next
0: year. So, in Manchester on stage, you were also joined by classicist and cultural historian Edith Hall. Kenev is amazing. <laughs> she, um, I had, uh, I'd asked all the pa- participants, like the participants and the panelists, if they had particular speeches, public, or, like well-known speeches that are out there in the public sphere, uh, if they, if they fancied um, sharing anything, because I thought it would be kind of an interesting way in to like learn a little bit more about the about the speakers and things that motivate them and what they love. And, and she read this amazing uh, speech from Sojourner Truth, who is um, an, an African-American a woman who had been herself a slave and was speaking at this kind of co- kind of coalition of women in like something like, I'm going to get the date wrong, something like 1863. I think it was 1851. Oh. So you're so, or maybe it's 1850. We should, let's find okay. out. And this speech was amazing. It was phenomenal. It had this refrain like, I know I a woman after everything, and I, I, a woman. And Edith delivered it with great... She did it, delivered it beautifully. Edith also brought quite a lot to that event around just looking at the, the history. Mm. And Edith was really able to make a very strong connection to how that's influenced today to see how fundamental it was for our project. Mm. So she talked quite eloquently about the um, ABCD.
3: And I'll just sum up Aristotle's rhetoric to you. In English, beautifully comes down to ABCD, okay? Doesn't make ABCD in ancient Greek, but it's ABCD. Audience, think about who you're talking to, what their emotional and social needs are, what they're likely to respond to. Think very, very hard. You might have an audience of people who don't agree with you that you're trying to win over. You might have an audience of people who do agree with you, who you want to incite to action. All right, that might be the, word, the Churchill speech, right? You've got to think exactly about that relationship and whether they're currently identifying with you at the beginning or whether you're trying to win them, win them over and what, what emotional things will get them believing you. Second, brevity. Look at Sojourner Truth. That took about 90 seconds. But I think you can all still remember what she said. The shorter, the better. Right? That was my only real complaint about Rachel Reeves at the Labour Party conference. We get it, you'll be an Iron Chancellor, right? I mean, it was very powerful, and I think may actually be instrumental in making a political change. I think there are a lot of people who would never vote Labour normally, who thought, hmm, say Ferris Sun. I would cut it by half if I'd been a speechwriter." absolutely. Clarity! What is the point of a speech if nobody can sum it up in a sentence, right? What is the point? Like, I will be an iron counsellor. <coughs> Ain't our woman, right? Um, you've got to be able to sum it up in a sentence, ideally one that has been given you in slogan form at some point <laughs> in the speech. Now, clarity. There is no point in making a speech if people don't understand. And then delivery. A, B, C, D. Audience, brevity, clarity, delivery. Delivery is a very big category, but it's being audible. <laughs> it's being respectful it's creating a, a a personality that is is plausible and, and people will, will believe it's about the sort of material sensible by which i mean the senses aspect of speech making
0: i love edith's a b c d i can't help reflecting kind of now that that comes from a place of sort of sophistry where, you know, like this is how you make a speech. You you know, you've got your argument. You might be arguing one thing one day and you might be arguing the next thing the next day and all you need to think about is your audience, whether it's clear, whether it's short and succinct and whether you're passionate about it in your delivery as an actor. But what I think that misses from our project, the actual like urge, the passion for for what it is that you're talking about, every single person, as we've sort of talked about already, like they all really had something that they want to speak to and about, and it's that that makes, to me, that makes these speeches so powerful. Yes, definitely A B C D, but it's something else about that. There's an E that's missing in that, which is, and I'm trying to find. I was kind of <laughs> desperately racking my brains. Is it like an urge that I can spell with an E? Is it like the embryo, the embryo of that uh, idea that, like mm-hmm. you know, that needs to make a, a good speech needs to come from in a place of Absolute integrity and authenticity, and that's what—that's what these speeches that we worked on did. That's so close to an E, isn't it? <laughs> F, or, <which laughs> be? O- authenticity. Authenticity. Yeah, authenticity. Maybe. No, I think we're stretching. <laughs> so the second person that we really wanted to bring in to this episode is Morale. When did you first meet Morale? Uh, morale came. Uh, came to our workshop that we did at the Manchester Deaf Centre in September. Morel actually works with an organisation called Deaf Explorers. So she uh, was sort of participating in that workshop in some ways as as a participant herself, but also as an organiser. She's unbelievable she's an extraordinary woman, came from Iran and, and her speech was about that. We spent quite a lot of time with her, supporting her sort of in one-on-one, that's Alan and myself, with a morale, th- uh, working out what it was that she wanted to say and how she would say it, building on the the, the, the kind of the structure of writing a speech. Um, Moral wrote the speech in English, which I think is her like fourth language. And she wrote that. We typed, she was, it was a typed speech that we kind of batted to and fro uh, but um, she delivered the speech, and when we spoke to her on the phone, she was she was communicating in British Sign Language in BSL, uh, which is like her fourth language. And I and I, I believe, and again, I think she said it in her speech that she only learnt to sign when she came to the when she came to the UK. Before that, she had been lip reading Farsi. Uh, so even in that, like you know, writing and communicating something in her fourth language, I think third or fourth language is extraordinary um, what we miss by by my listening to this extraordinary audio um of her speech um uh, interpreted by lauren is 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 the way and the manner with which she delivered it it was just her whole, you know you know the, the the expression the physicality of the delivery the passion with which which she brought to that isn't really conveyed through an audio experience um um, but, but I'm, it was just a privilege to hear her and to enable her to, to bring her story to the stage.
2: My name is Morel and I'm a refugee. Um, it's not something that I necessarily want, but unfortunately this is my story. I like the UK. I'm quite happy here and everything that I have, I appreciate. But I would like to go home to my family, my home country of Iran. Unfortunately, it's not safe for me to go back to Iran. I came to England to study jewellery making at Birmingham City University. And when I arrived here, I noticed that people had freedom to make their own decisions and live their life in the way that they wanted to. And it encouraged me to reflect on my own childhood and the way that I was forced, you know, throughout my education, almost felt brainwashed. And I felt like maybe some of the things that I'd learned wasn't necessarily 100% true. So, for example, one of the things that we're taught in Iran is in relation to hair. And we're taught that women have to cover up their hair to protect themselves, keep themselves safe, to stop men being attracted to them or potentially even hurting them. But when I arrived in the UK, I noticed that women were making their own decisions. And I felt that I didn't have that choice growing up. So I decided to cut my hair and to create a brooch through one of my university projects. And I used the hair to create a brooch and it was my way of challenging the Iranian regime and things that I'd experienced when I was growing up. Because through university they asked us to film our projects, so I filmed myself cutting my hair and uploaded it to the university website. Unfortunately, the Iranian embassy were monitoring my movements here in the UK and keeping an eye on what I was doing. And they were able to access the video online. The Iranian government then said I had to go back to Iran to answer for my behavior and to explain why I made that project. I didn't expect that. I'm miles away from Iran and they're still monitoring me. They're still checking what I'm doing every day. Imagine if I was in Iran, how controlling that must feel to follow their strict regime and to always have to answer to somebody. I felt I had no choice. I had to seek asylum here in the UK. Growing up in Iran is really tough and they run a really, really strict regime with lots of rules and lots of laws. Now I'm in the UK, I feel like I do have some freedom but sometimes I feel a little bit torn. I don't know where my freedom is because obviously I grew up in Iran, things are really different. Iran have got a lot of rules, they've got a lot of laws, and a lot of their laws and rules are influenced by religion and the two really are entangled within one another. The people that create the laws and the rules in Iran, they do so based on their own religious beliefs and therefore the religion really, really does influence the law. If you, as an Iranian person, have opposing beliefs, it's against the law. If you want to make decisions about your own clothing, you want to choose what you want to wear, it's against the law. There's no freedom of speech or right to make opposing decisions, it's against the law. As a deaf girl growing up in Iran, it was really tough for me getting on with my everyday life. I didn't sign back in Iran and I was forced to lip read people and I was also forced to learn Arabic language. I was told that I had to speak Arabic so that Allah could understand and listen to me. It was hard and I felt constantly lost all the time over who I was. Now I'm here talking to you guys today, pretty big audience. I'm just a normal person living my everyday life I'm not necessarily involved in politics. I'm not an activist by any means. I'm here in England, and to be honest, I don't pay much attention to the politics here. But if you're born in Iran, you really have no choice. You're automatically born into a political regime. I understand that for some countries whereby the law and the religion seem so closely connected to one another, it can be quite difficult to challenge. Their regime and their ideologies, but I just want to say that if you support human rights in Iran, that does not make you Islamophobic.
0: Morale speech was so impactful because it really no
2: spotlighted the responsibility the I think this project carries,
0: and moment, I know you carry around. Enabling but people to take their voice, to take their space, mm. and that can have incredible impact in terms of change, but there up. can also be an element might of opening yourself up to criticism, to suppression, um, a lot of um, and resistance the to the message that you so powerfully want and to bring me, I, think if the world, I was so grateful to hear morale's all story the world are but it is Iran, it's also just so important to, to recognize the implication of finding inspiring. that voice. And what lastly, do we do with those voices allies, once they've been yeah, unleashed to people, they've been heard
2: having empathy yeah. and trying to develop I mean I think this is just the, the beginning of
0: difference. that journey <laughs> it was really it was really powerful summary, obviously to. And at the to, end of the day um, what I have here
2: in the hear UK, those speeches again
0: really and to work one on one last week with the participants. It. Like I also really, you
2: know, They were very full days for me because, where I could be with my family uh, a,
0: as well as sort of chairing the of in the conversation afternoon at a set time, uh, working one on one with the participants to kind of build today, the confidence for the space, but think about delivery and think relook at the words and make sure they were they were still they were still words that sat comfortably with them and so it was really fascinating to see them again we have got work still to do to find platforms for those voices to be heard in their communities uh, the people who can help change things and actually being able to have rinku barbaga and zara manuhutu there who were talking about what they do with that responsibility and where they where how 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 to kind of to create Space for them to be heard, and um, how to play the game so their voices are heard. If they are, you know, in conventional places, whether that's Zara representing people of colour whose voices are not heard because their experiences are so marginalised, or that's Winku talking about the deaf community uh, and 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 being heard um, as a deaf person in a hearing world. But in- interestingly, also because, like, actually, his approach and the things he's pushing for are not necessarily conventionally heard in in the deaf community too so he was also I you know I learned a lot from listening to them giving finding ways to provide space for them to be heard by by me and <laughs> and also by the audience was brilliant but it's not easy it's not an easy job and it's only just beginning and we need to work harder to to be listening and to be providing space for the for, for less heard voices to be out there sorry you're you are a, a youth worker an activist a speech maker can you can you tell us a little I mean, tell us a little bit about yourself and how like your voice and using your voice comes into your work?
4: My voice used to get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so using it um, as a young person landed me in some sticky situations at home, at school, gobby, you know, uh, outspoken, obnoxious, disrespectful. These were kind of the labels that I had. Um but my voice was a gift. Um I'm a youth worker. I currently work for an organisation called Kids of Colour, which is a youth project um, which is focused on race, identity and culture for young people of colour here in Greater Manchester. And it's the youth project that I wish that I had growing up. There's a lot of healing work that takes place for me just working there. Um, And I've, I've been doing youth work for like 12 years. And it's actually my lived experience and all of the labels that I carry Um, As a woman of colour, you know, diverse, care leaver, first generation British, all of the labels that are given to me, and youth work that drove me into activism, or now, I'd call it community organising. And you could call me a speech maker in in two ways. There's me on a Saturday at a protest with a megaphone leading chants, and you know, calling out local authority leaders and governments and institutions and the GMP. And then I'm I'm an orator in, in smaller spaces like this, in community meetings. I don't think all speeches are about standing up with a microphone. I think some of it is about dialogue with other people, connecting with other people. Like that's the point to me of speeches is, is connections, relationship, uh, engaging in dialogue, learning, sharing information. Uh, developing as a person and, and that's how I spend my time as a youth worker. My friends call me and tell me that I um, chat bubbles for a living.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: which actually is true. Like, I, I do a lot of talking in my job but I also do a lot of listening, a lot of understanding, a lot of of, of researching and so that's what, where I found myself and that's why I'm so heavily influenced by the Black Bower movement, another speech that I was going to mention which ties in quite nicely with what we've heard from others today was was from Fred Hampton. And it was about, um, you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail the revolution. And they're words that I live by, and I think they're words that a lot of us grassroots kind of, and c- grassroots to me means community, uh, lived experience, shared identities. Um, and I think they're words that we hold really close to our hearts, especially in times of struggle. And even when we're on the up, right, because cycles, and things move and so sometimes joy not everyday struggle
0: and did you have is your education in in this in this role that you've is it is it all self-taught is it from listening to and watching videos I mean did you like were you ever sat down and said this is how you write a speech
4: no no, no I am um, I in school I was the kid that came up with an idea and we went and my friends joined me to do it so I'd say it's a lifelong kind of skill that I've developed, <laughs> for better or for worse. I also spent a lot of time in the church as a kid. I have watched sermons, preachers, meetings, that kind of stuff. I was dragged to protest and public meetings as a kid, then went voluntarily as I got older, on. Um, and kind of, yeah, just surrounded myself with people and then learned from others. Um, and kind of learnt over time that you can shout and scream at somebody but sometimes you've got to be a bit tactical with presenting information so that actually people choose to listen to you instead of just pretending to and <laughs>
0: that's a sort over time is kind of euphemism for making serious mistakes <laughs> also
4: yeah I mean there are spaces that definitely wouldn't welcome me back again for shouting at them um, and telling them truths that they weren't receptive to, truths nonetheless but they weren't ready to hear them or just didn't want to hear them um, but with mistake, come learning. Is anything really a mistake? For me, a mistake is when you cause harm to somebody, and I like to think that I don't do that. Um, I just don't play by rules that are given to us if they don't serve me and my community.
5: That's, that's really interesting to hear, especially that what you said there, though, about sometimes being a bit tactical. Because that's, that's one of the essential sort of propositions of rhetoric, right? Not to be misleading or pretend, but to think when you're trying to persuade someone... How do I say this for that person or for that group? Can I adapt my words a little bit so that I can explain what they need to know? It's different for this group, different for that group, and you can hear in the speeches that we've heard today how people have thought about how can they explain the situation to people to bring them along so they can understand what it is so they can make their, their proposition so you're being an <laughs> excellent rhetorician, kind of instinctively knowing that it's partly about thinking who the audience is and how to speak to them and that's what that's why it's part of that brings people together can be about making connections.
0: Um, I wondered, Rinky, whether you have, whether what whether Zara is saying about kind of working out where you can find a voice and how you use that voice is something familiar, to, sounds familiar to, you, to you in your experiences?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I've got lots of uh, <laughs> similar experiences to uh, Zara. One example is, uh, you know, campaigning against racism within the deaf community. I created a uh, film which revealed to the world the systemic racism within the deaf community and I, I felt like I had a voice against the old generation of white deaf people. And it's really interesting because Alan said, you know, when you when you meet someone, you have to adapt you, your communication style to them. I completely agree, but unfortunately, in the uh, deaf community, the, there's lots of people who have a voice, but we don't see it in, in the mainstream. We don't see it on TV and social media, you know. So how am I supposed to to learn from these important role models if they don't use sign language? If I don't see it in the mainstream, so I feel like I'm almost like a frontline soldier, and I was the one who stepped on the bomb and exposed everything, and I took the backlash for it. So I felt like I had to adapt my style um, and and try and change the way that I educate people, because that brash way wasn't right, and I I completely disagreed with what was going on in the deaf community, but I had to adapt my style to, to, to suppress some of what was going on. I've you know I, I feel as though I watch politics and I see hearing people on the TV and I read the subtitles and I, I know what their perspective is, but they don't know what my perspective is I've, I've found out uh, a lot about the deaf community, obviously through my lived experience and through Paddy Ladd's book, but it's frustrating because who's going to listen to my voice.
0: Some people are listening to your voice. Can you can you tell? And we're listening to it now. Can you tell us a little bit about what what how what, what your about your voice and what you are doing as an artist? Not your how your what your work is.
5: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's difficult for um, us deaf people to to find the platforms to find the opportunities to get up on the stage, uh, especially before social media. So I decided that in order to enact change, I would get involved in stand-up comedy. I found it extremely difficult, because in the mainstream, they said deaf people can't be funny. But in America, they accepted the deaf community. So I went over there, and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show people what I'm about. I'm going to tell my jokes. And as I told those jokes, I brought in some important deaf activism, you know, I, I spoke about the the racism in in schools, sign language being banned in schools. So, you know, I was I was practicing this activism from an early stage and and sort of sneaking it into my shows. Another show that I worked on recently uh, was called Made in India, Scratched Out Britain, and lots of people, uh, you know, felt as though I shouldn't be telling my story because it was so it was so brash and. And, and, you know, they, they didn't want to hear about the oppression that I'd been facing because of, of, of feeling guilty. So I found a really clever way to, to portray the, the difficulties that we face in the deaf community in a, in a beautiful theatrical way. So I'm constantly adapting uh, my voice to make sure that it is heard. Uh, You know, my my one-man show is is, is a completely unique show, something you've never seen in theatre and on TV. And, you know, it's, it's an amazing way for me to show my voice. The other deaf people within the community, like Rose, are fantastic at portraying what it's like to be a deaf person in society and the oppression that they face. And I want to continue working to change the world.
0: Another moment that really struck me around the impact of finding your voice was when we heard from a member of the audience in Manchester about feeling lost and really not knowing where they stood politically at the moment and really reaching out to the panel to find an answer to that. Yeah, um it's a great question, Marie. That moment was really emotional. She was very emotional. We all, you could sort of feel in the room this sort of desire to kind of give out and give her a big hug. Actually, Zara responded phenomenally in that moment. Zara just jumped in and said, You know, I, I just feel your pain. You just need to look after yourself. You need to create spaces for rest as well as activism and find your people and i and i pretty sure that they connected through that event i think they went off and had a drink in the bar together it was really afterwards it was really important and gosh like that person was very brave to talk um and to speak out in that moment in the audience and to kind of make themselves vulnerable i think there's a jeopardy in speaking out um and that making yourself vulnerable in that moment which every single one of our participants have done through in some way through the process and 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 it turns out the audience the audiences were doing it too so that was really extraordinary uh, there were i think 25% maybe 30% of the audience that night were from the deaf community in manchester and that was also really um, important for us that, that they felt welcomed and were part and heard as part of the event we had several wonderful bsl interpreters on stage with us Uh, and and creating this space where where our conversation could be as accessible as possible. I think it's fair to say that this project has, I mean, it's just profoundly impacted so many people as individuals, though we've worked with so many groups. In many ways, if you told me that this project had been going for years and you'd been doing these one-on-one workshops, I believe you from going to those events. But the third voice that we want to hear from is, Charlie, around that impact that the project has had on him. How did you meet Charlie? How did we meet Charlie? We met Charlie in Norwich. Uh, Charlie was part of this um, group which called the Common Lot, which is a sort of community-led theatre company that is that's based in a council estate. Uh, called Mile Cross in Norwich and Charlie's a musician he, he was a natural orator uh, they were like he was dropping in the rule of three Alan was so proud um, and <laughs> the rule of three within the rule of three it was gorgeous and he was enjoying the process but it, but but to come back to that that E or the missing letter it came from a really powerful personal place for Charlie working-class kids
6: today are more than likely to be growing up in privately rented properties where the cost of rent is on average 22% higher than local authority housing. Their parents can't afford music lessons. They often can't even afford the basic necessities. Clothing, eating, food. Nearly four million children went to school hungry. Our housing is intrinsically tied to our health. Poor housing means poor health. A hundred years ago, working class people living in the slums were dying of typhoid due to their unsanitary conditions. Today, slum landlords provide housing full of damp and black mould, leading to a rise in respiratory conditions and sometimes even resulting in death. Housing has a huge influence on mental health as well. Children living in poor housing are more likely to be stressed, anxious and depressed. All of this contributes to a whole generation being stuck in a cycle of poverty, low attainment and shortened life expectancy. What chance have they got to be creative, to grow, to thrive when they are going to bed every night, hungry, cold and depressed? We're not building them a future. We're taking it away. But we can build
1: a better future. We've done it before. We
6: started building social housing in this country over a hundred years ago with the Homes for Heroes Act.
0: I think what was always also so incredible was when you caught up with Charlie after the event and just to hear what they'd taken away from it and the learning that they'd had was also uh, really insightful. What was really wonderful about that last event that we had in London was that Charlie, there were, we, we had seven participants in person from Norwich, um, Brighton, Newham, Oxford. And Cornwall, and they'd all come together, and they were, they were, you know, they'd, be, they'd been from being from five different workshops, and we worked together through the course of the day, and I worked individually with them, but they kind of bonded through the through the afternoon, and by the time we, we we they were kind of in our event, they all sat together at a table, and they were filming each other and supporting each other as they went up to give their speech. They became a little community. It was like a it was a community of communities, um, and that kind of individual voices, but actually the support and encouragement that they gave each other to to, to really be themselves and. To to bring themselves was really powerful um, and I loved that experience really of, 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 of sort of seeing the power of the power of that kind of power of that the, the strength of it you know we did a game of zip that boing in the room of course, did. Of course we did zip that boing <laughs> in the room in the afternoon uh, it was like we dropped in I, like I was we we're building small theatre ensembles all the way around the country and that was a sort of a little regathering of them again that afternoon so Charlie you were you were the last person this evening to deliver your speech there was quite a lot of pressure (laughs) how was it finally giving the speech
6: oh it was really good um going last is a mixed bag because um I mean you've obviously you're like yeah I got the last spot but also then you have to build up the entire evening thinking okay I've got I've still got to go I've still got to go you don't get to relax um but I mean it's just such a lovely warm room you know and i think we all had loads of time to prepare and we all we all felt really prepared and and loads of really great feedback as well from from yourself and from everyone else on the project that like actually when you get up there you kind i mean i kind of felt like you know yeah i, I think yeah i think i've got this <laughs> um all i've got to do now is deliver it the best i can
0: You really delivered it powerfully with loads of passion I think it was the most passionate I've, I've heard you
6: everyone's speech upped from the rehearsal everyone delivered a far higher le- a higher level this evening than they had this afternoon which was really really nice to see
0: I, I totally I completely agree what was it you know obviously you were, you were speaking about housing and it was such a mix because there were so many different people from so many different places do you have any reflections kind of hearing that kind of diversity of topics
6: um yeah I mean it was just I mean firstly it was really nice it was really nice to hear such a diversity um, and to hear about things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of before you know like for example um, we had someone speaking about their experience as uh, a black black person at drama college um, and how the world's you know is how it all sort of revolves around white people essentially, and that's that's not an experience I can ever share you know and I can't share the experience of you know um, a, a woman's experience of trying to battle against kind of misogyny um and particularly our, our speakers um, talk about her you know her Indian backgrounds um, and her parents saying um, about there was an honor in in a woman becoming an actor and um, those are experiences that I can't, you know, I can't personally, first person, understand them. So it was really nice to be able to to hear them and to hear the passion with which they were delivered, um, and to and to try and to get some understanding of that through that passion and through that other person sharing their lived experience. Yeah.
0: And it was a, there's a lot of sadness in all the speeches, but what's wonderful about them is that they all they all have. It will end in a real kind of sense of optimism. Every single one this evening has suggested a way forward. And I feel that very strongly that for tonight, uh, not just generally for us where we are in the year at the moment, entering the winter when it's really difficult out there in, in the world to hear all this optimism. Um, and I, I guess I'm grateful to you, Charlie, for being able to help see a way forward, but for everybody too.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think it's so important to have optimism, um, most importantly when things are hard and things are horrifically hard for a lot of people at the moment. Um, and if you don't have optimism, you don't fight, and that's what we're all wanting to do, right? I mean, all those speakers, we're all up there saying, no, we've got to fight for those things, and if you don't believe you can change them, then you're never going to fight for them. So I fundamentally believe we can change...
0: So here we are. What we have so much material. We have hours and hours and hours <laughs> of recordings. I'm so sorry for you to. have Don't gone be sorry. All that. It's been. I mean, it's no. It's been my absolute pleasure. It's just very challenging to do it justice yeah. in in a, in a podcast. But we're, we're trying, and thank goodness we've got four episodes to do it in. <laughs> what does all of this material tell us? What does it tell yeah, you? I really don't know, Marie. I mean, I know. <laughs> I mean, I've got voices in my head, I've got their voices, I've got their, like, the things that they wanted to talk about, I have, so I have their speeches, I have them... You know, the things that they said to me while we were writing the speeches that never made it into the text. You know it's so rich, it's just phenomenal. And and now we have to make a play about it. And and, and there's really some really interesting, you know, quite brings up loads of interesting questions about like, you know, how how do can we ask actors to play these characters, these people, to bring in and like, you know, where, what do they do about accents? What do they do about their like lived experiences because it's been, you know, we've we've encountered people from very many lived experiences around. Um, around the around the country and they've been sharing those lived experiences with us so how does that translate so I've got lots of questions I don't know the answers um, yet but I think what this process has shown me particularly um, working with you on the podcast where you you do such a beautiful job at representing so many of those fragments of those beaches and they can sit alone as mm-hmm. well as you don't need to hear the full voice, full speech. You don't need to know the background of the person. You can just have a sentence and gosh, it's a whole world. So so, so, how do we translate all of that into, onto, into something that feels powerful and sums it up and gives a sense of the picture of the country? I don't know yet, um, but that's the job for next year to work out as well as continue to do more workshops I mean there's such an interest in it so we're going to find a way to, to to find a way to build more workshops to go back to some of the places that we've been to to connect continue to connections with with all those communities there's a lot to do but it's very exciting as a journey so much to do um I'm can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to 2024 <laughs> and hearing some more of these stories um and seeing yeah seeing what makes it to the stage Hearing those personal journeys and where they get to, and where where these participants are in a year, in two, three years, where where they're going yeah. to be, and the impact this project has beyond that. And of course, like there's an election to come Absolutely. at some point that will, like you know, potentially help to uh, like usher in a, an era which might bring about and help to sort of put some of their changes into place, or not. Mm. And, you know, what do you do with all those expectations. The next government have got a lot riding on them, <laughs> don't they? But. Um, Um, To sort of wrap up, because I have to go. (laughs) Um, Our public house has been funded by an amazing partnership from the Arts and Humanities Research Council and Arts Council England and the Three Monkeys Trust and many wonderful individuals. And I'm most of all just hugely grateful to all of the people who've shared their stories by writing speeches with us and um, coming to the workshops, uh, supporting the workshops, facilitating them And then most of all, the participants who were able to kind of brave the stage to share those speeches with us. Um, Thank you very much. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, um, please share with your friends, talk about it, tell everybody to listen, um, review us, like us, share us and review us. Thank you very much.